Welcome back to Cineversary, a podcast that celebrates a milestone anniversary of a masterful work of cinema. Every month we send happy birthday wishes to a different film currently observing a joyous jubilee. Now that's everything from a 20th all the way up to a 100th anniversary. I'm your host, Eric Martin, creator and moderator of the Cineverse Film Discussion Group that meets weekly on Zoom. All right, we're about a month past its actual anniversary date, but there's no time like the present to honor one of the most acclaimed, award-winning, and nominated, and beloved motion pictures of the 20th century. We're talking about All About Eve, which originally debuted in 1950, making it a 70th birthday recipient in 2020. And I didn't have to look hard for the ideal co-pilot on this particular installment. After listening to one of the outstanding commentary tracks included on the Criterion Collection edition of this movie, I knew I wanted Sam Staggs. Now, he's the author of All About, All About Eve, When Blanche Met Brando, Close Up on Sunset Boulevard, and many other notable tomes that pay homage to classic films. Sam was kind enough to agree, so I give him center stage in this episode, which will examine why All About Eve is worth celebrating all these years later, its impact and legacy, what we can learn from the picture today, how it stood the test of time, and more. Prior to introducing Sam, let's dig into this picture's backstory, shall we? Here's a recap from Wikipedia. All About Eve is a 1950 American drama film written and directed by Joseph L. Mankiewicz and produced by Daryl F. Zanuck. It was based on the 1946 short story The Wisdom of Eve by Mary Orr, although she's not given screen credit, unfortunately. The film stars Betty Davis as Margot Channing, a highly regarded but aging Broadway star. Anne Baxter plays Eve Harrington, an ambitious young fan who maneuvers herself into Channing's life, ultimately threatening Channing's career and her personal relationships. The film co-stars George Sanders, Celeste Holm, Gary Merrill, Hugh Marlowe, Thelma Ritter, Marilyn Monroe in one of her earliest roles, Gregory Radoff, Barbara Bates, and Walter Hampton. All About Eve made its theatrical debut on October 13, 1950. Praised by critics at the time of its release, this movie received a record 14 Academy Award nominations and ultimately won six, including Best Picture, Best Director, and Best Adapted Screenplay, both by Mankiewicz, Best Supporting Actor, earned by Sanders, Best Costume Design, and Best Sound Mixing. All About Eve is the only film in Oscar history to receive four female acting nominations. That was for Davis and Baxter as Best Actress and Holm and Ritter as Best Supporting Actress. Widely considered to be one of the greatest movies ever, All About Eve was one of the first 50 films selected for preservation in the United States Library of Congress's National Film Registry, deemed culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. All About Eve was ranked 16th on the American Film Institute's 1998 list of the 100 best American films and ranked number 28 on the AFI's 2007 reboot of that list. Currently, All About Eve earns a whopping 99% fresh rating on Rotten Tomatoes, where its average critical score comes in at 9.26 out of 10. Very impressive. Alrighty, to wet your whistle, let's tune into the film's original trailer. Davis, ever since I've been on this set, I've heard nothing but discussion of Eve. May I have your opinion of her? The golden girl, the cover girl, the girl next door, the girl on the moon. Time's been very good to Eve. Life goes where she goes. She's been profiled, covered, revealed, reported. What she wears and where and when, whom she knows, and where she was and when and where she's going. Eve has insatiable ambition and talent. An improbable person with a contempt for humanity, an inability to love or be loved. But how can such a woman fool so many? How does any Eve do it? She's a girl of so many interests. Pretty rare quality these days. A girl of so many rare qualities. So she seems. So you've pointed out so often. So many qualities so often. 
Her loyalty, efficiency, devotion, warmth and affection, and so young. So young and so fair. Eve, my understudy. Didn't you know? Of course I knew. Just slipped your mind. Find out. Only thing. What I go after, I want to go after. I don't want it to come after me. Don't get up. And please stop acting as if I were the queen mother. Sorry, I didn't Outside of a beehive, Margot, your behavior would hardly be considered either queenly or motherly. You're in a beehive, pal, didn't you know? We're all busy little bees, full of stings, making honey day and night. Aren't we, honey? Very touching, very academy of dramatic arts. That bitter cynicism of yours is something you've acquired since you left Radcliffe. That cynicism you refer to, I acquired the day I discovered I was different from little boys. Ah, come on, get up, I'll buy you a drink. I'll admit I may have seen better days, but I'm still not to be had for the price of a cocktail. Like a salted peanut. <laughs> What's so funny? Nothing. Nothing? Everything. Everything's so funny. <laughs> Fasten your seatbelts, ladies and gentlemen. It's going to be a not-so-bumpy ride through spoiler land ahead. So if you're among the uninitiated and have yet to feast your eyes on All About Eve, well, here's your chance to hit pause, watch said movie, and return without feeling like one of Miss Caswell's unhappy rabbits. Got it? Everybody back? We didn't lose anybody, did we? Okay, great. Then it's time to roll out the red carpet for my guest, author Sam Staggs. Well, it's my pleasure to welcome author Sam Staggs to Cineversary. Welcome, Sam. Thank you. Thank you, Eric. So I have to ask you, of course, you wrote a great book about All About Eve, and this must be uh, somewhere among your personal favorites, I would assume. Is that true? It is, but I came to it rather late. I saw it for the first time in, I think it was October, mid the middle of October 1974, when I arrived in New York. Uh, I I think I got there during the afternoon. I was going to stay for a couple of months with a a college friend of mine who had been in New York for several years. And this was, I was sort of uh, on approval uh, with myself. The question uh, was, uh, will will New York work out for me? Will I like it? Will I find a job? Will I get along so well and all that? So uh, anyway, he and I went to the Elgin Theater in Chelsea that night for a, a double bill of All About Eve and Sunset Boulevard. These these two movies were always playing at the Elgin, at Theater 80 St. Mark's. Your listeners who uh, who knew New York in the 70s and 80s and even earlier will certainly know these theaters. So we saw those uh, two movies. Little did I ever guess that uh, 20 or 25 years later, I would write a book not about not only about one of them, but about both, all about Eve and Sunset Boulevard. And of course, they were, they had become such cult favorites by then that uh, people in the audience said the lines along with the actors, you know, as they later did for the Rocky Horror Show. And, and the sound and of music so, and so forth. Oh, yeah. So it was, a, you know, it was kind of a, a cut-up session. I'm not sure that I took in a great deal about the movie. I was probably, uh, I probably had my eyes on the audience, at least one eye on the audience, one, on, uh, one eye on the screen. Wow. So you have a long history with this movie, and is it one that you go back to uh, every few years, uh, just pull out on the shelf or look up on TV? Well, I do, and yet, you know, I saw it so many times uh, when I was working on the book, and uh, I so in a way I, I, I have sort of OD'd on it. I, I watched it earlier this year, uh, for the first time in, in quite some time, 
uh, an, when the book came out in uh, <clears throat> excuse me 2000, some an interviewer said, "Well, how many times have you seen it?" And I I said, "Well, I don't. I didn't really count. I'm sorry that I didn't uh, make a mark over my bed, you know, or something, or scratch on the wall with a toenail each time <laughs> I saw it. But uh, I didn't do that. So I would I would guess probably 30 or 40 times. Wow. Yeah. No, that's that's a true fan. There's no question about it. For me. I came to this party kind of late, Sam. I first discovered all about Eve as a 30-something, and it's only grown in stature and esteem for me in all the years since with several subsequent viewings. So I did pick up the Criterion Collection edition, which, of course, has your fantastic commentary track on it. In fact, I was listening to that track just uh, the other night. So it was fun to revisit the movie and see it in all of its splendor and glory. So let's let's take a little deeper dive here, Sam. Why is All About Eve worth celebrating 70 years later? Why does it still matter? And in your opinion, how has it stood the test of time? Well, everybody, I think, will agree that it, it is an undisputed classic. Now, that doesn't mean that everybody has to like it or has to like everything about it. But it's, it is, it's, it's part of Hollywood's Mount Rushmore, if you will, uh, Hollywood's classic Mount Rushmore is certainly not limited to three or four heads. It's, you know, hundreds probably. But this would be near the top of the stack, I Mm. think. And interestingly enough, another movie that came out the same year, Sunset Boulevard, I think the two of them are both, they're way, way up there uh, as Hollywood classics. So, uh, and you know, of course, that has been widely recognized over the years. All About Eve is on practically every best list of all time, you know, the, the AFI list of the 100 best movies that came out around, what, 2000 or so, 2000, 2001, All About Eve was somewhere on that, near, near the top, I believe. Uh, it's sort of, uh, it's, a, it's a, sort of a kind of a comfort movie in the way that, uh, that Casablanca is a comfort movie, although the, the, two movies, the two of them are very, very different from each other. Yeah, no question. I mean, this has been called a writer's picture, and to me, the sparkling dialogue is what really stands out. It's often been noted as among the very best in Hollywood history, as you said. I looked this up. In fact, the screenplay ranks number five on the Writers Guild of America's list of 101 greatest screenplays. And interestingly, I mean, tell me if you disagree, but there's not much action in All About Eve. We aren't shown a diverse array of settings, and the plot is eh, fairly easy to guess. Uh, you, you, you would maybe uh, come to the conclusion. So instead, the action and the intrigue comes from the characters, from their conversations. But it's more than just the spoken words that shine. Uh, All About Eve is also a masterfully structured story. It's kind of conjoined with the exploration of three interrelated couples and two character arcs that intersect and diverge. Now, one is, of course, Margot grappling with feelings of insecurity and aging into obsolescence and self-doubt as she presumably heads into a downward trajectory. And the other is a wolf in sheep's clothing who is headed in the opposite direction, scheming her way to the top. So as further proof of its precision composition, fittingly, and this was brought up uh, in the Criterion Collection essay by Terrence Rafferty, but Margot gets the first laugh in the movie and the last laugh over two hours later. It, it was accused at the time of being filmed theater. I, you know, I, I think that's rather a compliment, but it is... If you if you if you want to see action and all sorts of uh, camera tricks and innovative uh, cinematography, all about Eve is not the right picture to, no. to look mm-hmm. look for. It's it's rather conservative, in fact, in in the cinematography and in uh, the settings and all of that. It's uh, it was it has been it has been criticized as being talky. Mm. Well, that's kind of the whole point, isn't it? Uh, Compare All About Eve with almost any film version of a George Bernard Shaw play. Now, that's talky. I I happen to like uh, many of the movies based on his plays. I recently saw Pygmalion again and laughed many, many times. And a few nights ago, I saw Androcles and the Lion uh, based on another one of his plays. But the talk goes on just too long. I think in All About Eve, the talk is well-timed. It doesn't... uh, it doesn't go on too long, and yet there's enough of it that everybody has his and her say. Right. 
No, I would agree. And also what's interesting is that for a film about actors and theatrical talent, we don't ever see anybody performing on stage or in front of the camera, so to speak. Uh, I'll read you a quote here by a film reviewer named Glenn Erickson who said, quote, All About Eve cautiously avoids showing anybody performing and instead uses testimony to describe Margot's star qualities and Eve's sensational breakthrough performance, unquote. So, in other words, what fascinates us is the backstage banter, the off-camera jockeying for power, and the behind-the-scenes drama, right? Would you agree? Uh, yes. I, I think that in, uh, the, before the, the final cut was made, there were a couple of scenes of Margot on stage. There are still well, pictures well. of Margot and other cast members in the plantation, you know, uh, aged in wood and all that. Mm-hmm. It, I think it was probably Daryl Zanuck's decision as producer to cut that out. Wise one, yes. Yes, you know, when you see plays and operas, uh, a play within a movie or an opera or something like that, they almost never work. The plays are ridiculous and the titles are ridiculous. Uh, Aged in Wood is a very funny title. But I, I think it would lose a lot of the, the humor <laughs> if we actually saw scenes from it. We, we see just enough. We see Betty Davis, or as Margot Channing, right. taking a bow and mm-hmm. pretending to be so startled that the audience is, uh, is giving her a, such a loud ovation. This uh, apparently was a wicked little jibe in the direction of Tallulah Bankhead, who was the, the world's greatest ham and, uh, and a, a great comedian and probably a very good actress on stage. But uh, we'll come to Tallulah a bit later. Just to finish this thought, Sam, I think that All About Eve still stands the test of time and is memorable and worth talking about here because of a lot of the qualities we were just discussing. I mean, cattiness, cynicism, the conniving, usurping nature of human beings, that, that stuff never goes out of style, you could argue. The way that Eve worms her way slyly into the accepting circle of Margot and the subtle nuances that help her accomplish her scheme make for intriguing entertainment. Absolutely. And another thing that keeps the movie fresh and that makes it immortal, if you will, two of the all-time top stars of Hollywood are in it, Betty Davis and Marilyn Monroe. And George Sanders is not, uh, you know, perhaps wouldn't be uh, in, in their class, but he is a, he's a perpetual favorite of many, many people. And then the rest of the cast, the character actors, certainly everybody who's ever seen Thelma Ritter on screen likes her and wants to see more and more of her. And I think she's at her best in All About Eve, as almost everybody else is. Unfortunately, this was the climax of every career connected with it. Betty Davis didn't do, didn't come near uh, this in any of her later pictures. Mm. Nor did Gary Merrill, uh, nor did Celeste Holm. Though she would certainly have argued uh, the the opposite point. Mer- only Marilyn Monroe, who zoomed into the stratosphere a year or so later. This is a great point because I think this film really matters due to the cast, as you were eloquently pointing out here. This is among the greatest cast ever assembled for a major motion picture, and many give arguably career-defining performances. We talked about Betty Davis, uh, Ann Baxter, Celeste Holm, and then you mentioned George Sanders, who I think won the Oscar for uh, Best Supporting Actor. And then, of course, let's not overlook Thelma Ritter, who just shines in every performance I've ever seen her in, including here. And I think that, you know, the assemblage of talent on display here is more than impressive. One of the great writer-directors in the golden age of Hollywood, Joseph L. Mankiewicz, he helmed the production. Uh, 20th Century Fox maestro Alfred Newman composed the music, uh, an often underrated composer for the time. And all-time great costume designer Edith Head, accompanied by Charles Lemaire, was responsible for the wardrobe. So you have a lot of big names associated with All About Eve. Well, and you know, going back to the to the cast for a minute, it was purely accidental. Betty Davis was she hadn't been actually called box office poison, but she was headed in that direction, and uh, she had been kicked out of Warner Brothers a few years earlier, and had floundered in the meantime, making several undistinguished pictures. Uh, uh, Hugh Marlowe was really he was just sort of a uh, somebody who was used from time to time if they needed to uh, to fill in a, a part in a movie. And the same for Gary Merrill 
and nobody liked Marilyn Monroe at the studio. She had been fired, you know, and and rehired, and on and on and on. And she had the reputation, even then, of being difficult, meaning late to the set and and slow to learn her lines. Right. Uh, and Celeste Holm had a very superior attitude to Hollywood. She was quite the grand dame and uh, liked to think of herself as the first lady of the American stage, though she really wasn't. So, Sam, in what ways do you think All About Eve was influential on cinema and popular culture, for that matter, and set trends? Well, I don't think it was influential on, on cinema, uh, meaning, uh, as we said before, camera work and, and that sort of thing. I think it was the good dialogue mm-hmm. and, and the cocktail party. I, in, in my book, I, I detail the many cocktail parties in the 50s and, laters, uh, and later that seemed to come directly from All About Eve. The piano music in the background, and of course not one of them was as good as the one in All About Eve. You know, I was doing a little research on this because, uh, again, let's be fair, this this isn't Citizen Kane, this isn't breaking new ground per se in terms of uh, setting all kinds of trends, but here's one that it possibly advanced a little bit. While it didn't invent the flashback narrative framing device, you can make a case that All About Eve advances it. So I'm going to read you a quote by a blogger. His name is Jason Fraley, who wrote this. All About Eve revolutionized the sort of nonlinear, fractured narrative structure to which we've become so accustomed. It was one of three phenomenal examples of fractured narratives in 1950, joining Sunset Boulevard and Rashomon. Eve begins with its ending, then loops back around to that same scene at the end. How clever that the scene featured both at the beginning and the end is an award ceremony where the person giving the acceptance speech may actually be hated by all those she's been thanking. Unquote. I, I do think that uh, the voiceover narrative uh, of those three films that you mentioned, All About Eve, Sunset Boulevard, and Rashomon, I think a lot of later directors and producers got the idea, oh, let's do a voiceover narrative. The, the voiceover was not that popular before mm-hmm. 1950. It had been used, of course, but uh, I think that was perhaps one of the, the innovations, voiceover and flashback. Yeah, the frac- the fractured narrative flashback, yeah. So it wasn't the first movie to do that, but again, uh, this was a seminal year for that kind of uh, an approach, if you will. And also, in terms of thinking about influence or inspiration that this movie perhaps spurred, it's not an overtly feminist film. You know, Margot's highest aspiration, after all, is to transition to a simple housewife and give up her career. But again, it's 1950, folks, so these are very different times. But saying that, there is evidence that suggests female dominance here at a time when women characters were often subjugated in a patriarchal society. So you consider that the female characters are given more screen time and significance than their male counterparts, and I think that's no small point. What would you say here? Well, the movie has often been lambasted by feminists and others uh, who claim that Betty Davis, uh, that Margot Channing, rather, is giving up her career to get married. That's not the case. If you listen carefully, she Mm -hmm. says to Lloyd Richards, the playwright, uh, in the nightclub when uh, she and Bill Sampson announced their engagement, she says something like, oh, Lloyd, I'll I'll tour a year in your new play, but I I don't want to, to be on stage every night because I'm going to be married. An actress touring for a year in a play is hardly giving up her career. This was a very important point in my book, and everybody who reviewed it, or who uh, claimed to review it without reading it in many cases, overlooked this. So, yeah, where do you fall on the side of, is this a feminist film, or does it fail in those those areas? What would you say? Well, I think you certainly could call it a feminist mm-hmm. film, but consider, as you say, it's 1950. Of course. So, uh, Margot Channing's not going to burn her bra, of course, yes, right. but she's a, she's a strong, <laughs> tough character, but vulnerable. Uh, I think she's, uh, I think in that regard, she's an excellently drawn character, excellently written, sure. and well-directed and certainly well-played. Uh, I, I, never, I, I never quite know what people are beefing about when they claim that it's, this is not feminist enough, or it's not this or that enough. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I really don't uh, 
I don't follow all that very closely. It's not interesting to me. Sure. Yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to draw comparisons from a movie 70 years old to what's going on today. It's almost unfair in, in a way. You can look back and, and kind of see, uh, you know, women's roles in society back then and, and, and not necessarily draw broad conclusions or, or make uh, harsh judgments about things. Again, different times, right? Oh, yes, yes. Very, Absolutely. Very. Uh, getting back to this question of influence or inspiration. Now, this movie helped inaugurate the era of the Oscar juggernaut by receiving a then-record 14 Academy Award nominations. It won six, including Best Picture, and we mentioned George Sanders for Best Supporting Actor, and there were some other awards as well. But interestingly, while there have been plenty of Hollywood films that have received more than 10 nominations since All About Eve, I looked this up, and only two other movies ever matched that 14-nomination tally. Do you know what they are? I think one was Star Wars, was it not? No, you're probably oh. close, but it's Titanic and La La Land, which the second one I would never have guessed. But Sam, when you earn so many nominations and you rake in six statuettes, your film continues to get discovered by new generations and talked about, even as a bit of film trivia, right? So All About Eve, if nothing else, I mean, it kind of uh, helped inaugurate this this new era of the Oscar juggernaut. And yet, there's the really terrible thing about the Oscars that year. Betty Davis and Gloria Swanson both lost they cancel each other out. That's right. Happens, and Judy Holliday, a much much lesser actress in a in a far smaller film, won the Oscar. Well, one of the contributing factor was was uh, Ann Baxter pushed for getting a Best Actress nomination, and 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 uh, votes probably went to her that should have perhaps gone to Betty Davis. Now, this should also be credited as one of the first movies to shine a less-than-flattering spotlight on the cutthroat and catty world of live theater people. This is interesting, right? So for decades, many playhouse performers and theater cognoscenti looked down upon cinema as an art form and as an inferior medium for quality stories and performances, it can be argued. And All About Eve has been interpreted by some as Hollywood's revenge upon the snobs of the stage, Although I don't buy into this argument because Joseph Mankiewicz loved live theater, and it's doubtful that this was his motivation. Uh, no, I think you're right. Uh, Celeste Holmes said uh, that, uh, that one of her quarrels with the, the script was that it, it portrayed uh, the, the world of theater in a false light. Uh, her point was that actors on stage usually cooperate with one another. They're not mm -hmm. in competition. Now, of course, we know that's not always the case. I suspect that Manquitz had in mind Hollywood. This was sort of his, his allegory about uh, Hollywood. Interesting. Uh, Hollywood uh, uh, he, couldn't, he couldn't very well make uh, uh, a movie about Hollywood itself, although Billy Wilder was doing it at the very same time across town. But uh, he had to he had to set it three to, uh, to, to twenty five hundred miles away in New York, I think to to get it past uh, Zanuck and and others. But uh, yeah, I don't know. You know, we we hear so many things about the theater and the, the skullduggery and about Hollywood skullduggery. Uh, my money would be on Hollywood as the 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 greater offender. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, you could debate either way, but it is food for thought, isn't it? Manquich was, was certainly interested in, in not only in New York theater, but uh, London theater and uh, European theater in sure. general. I mm -hmm. think probably London theater is much more, the, the, the people involved are much more cooperative there. They, they think of themselves much more as a team with smaller egos than in New York and certainly than in Hollywood. I think you could, you could argue that point fairly fairly substantially. And they do give the Sarah Siddits Award, not the, uh, you know, award for some, uh, you know, American thespian or something like that, right? So that, that says something. Yeah. And many years later, in the 70s, both Betty Davis and Ann Baxter won an actual Sarah Siddons Award. That's right. I read that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Life uh, imitates art, as they say. Uh, Betty Davis and Ann Baxter, who are who become enemies in the film, in real life, remained friends for the rest of their lives. 
So interesting because, you know, listening to your commentary and reading more about All About Eve, Celeste Holm and Betty Davis were not the kindest of partners on the film. And yet the co-star to which she was uh, a little more warm was Ann Baxter, whose character is this snake in the grass. That's interesting. Yeah, it tells us how good the actors were, that mm. they, could, they could play all of this on screen, you know, and, and then sit down and have lunch together or go out sure. for drinks later in the day. Yeah, I found it interesting, too, that uh, Thelma Ritter and uh, Betty Davis were good friends. They seemed to hit it off really well. They both had kind of a cynical attitude about things. So maybe uh, peas in a pod. Yeah, and uh, Thelma Ritter was also very fond of uh, Marilyn Monroe. She said uh, some years later, she said, I was, I loved that girl from the first time I met her. It's interesting because Betty Davis wasn't so kind in her assessment of Monroe. Oh no, uh, <laughs> Betty, Betty did not win the, human, the, the Jean Herschel Humanitarian Award. No, yeah. <laughs> certainly not. She Just to finish it. this thought, Sam, about influence or inspiration, All About Eve isn't the first Hollywood movie to creatively and stylistically use a freeze frame that immediately halts the story and the action. You know, perhaps It's a Wonderful Life did that four years earlier and some movies before that. But the filmmaker's choice to freeze the action at the moment Eve reaches for her award and then return to that same frozen frame at the movie's conclusion, I think is an inspired decision that likely influenced subsequent films. Oh, I think so, yes. And, you know, imagine... If, the, if All About Eve had been told from start to finish without the, the freeze frame and the flashbacks, mm. I think it would be a, a much inferior picture, don't you? No, it wouldn't have been as narratively interesting, that's for sure. No, no, it wouldn't, because we don't know. There's Eve reaching for an award, and we, we have no idea what, what all this is about, because there have been only slight uh, hints in the, the voiceovers so far from George Sanders mm-hmm. and Les Holm. And, uh, no, it's it's interesting and very innovative. I can't think of the next uh, picture or pictures that, that used a similar device. I think uh, the next revolutionary use of freeze frame was arguably Francois Truffaut's 400 Blows, which came, I what, nine just, years uh, later? Yeah, I was just about to say. And I wonder if Manquich used it in a later picture. Did he use it in... Uh, the Barefoot Contessa, I can't remember. It's been too long since I've seen that. I don't yeah, recall. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I don't recall either. But mm. uh, now, Truffaut rather made it made it famous, and uh, although All About Eve was much admired by the French New Wave, uh, I think Truffaut probably got more credit than really he deserved for, uh, for using it in The 400 Blows. I first thought it was It's a Wonderful Life that kind of, you know, introduced this idea. But there were movies, uh, even into the early 30s, I want to say, that utilized the freeze frame creatively. So this would not have been the first instance. But as I said, it's it's advancing this as a technique. And and again, I think the influence, the timing of it when it came out, I think that movies in its wake would have taken more from this freeze frame than earlier freeze frames. That's what I'm getting at. Let's dig into themes here, Sam. What's the moral of the story of All About Eve? What messages or themes are explored? Well, I don't think there is a, a moral or a message. I don't like messagey movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, at that time in Hollywood, a, a, a happy ending was de rigueur, and there is a, a more or less happy ending here. But, you know, Oscar Wilde said very sardonically uh, one time, uh, the the good end well and the bad end badly. That's what fiction <laughs> is. He was he was talking about trashy fiction, of course, and uh, uh, but Hollywood uh, had the same idea uh, then and for many years to come. But still, uh, Sam, so you, you you must agree that there are some themes that can be mined from All About Eve, no? Oh, perhaps. Uh, if you if you stab people in the back, you you end up alone and all of that. But it's a it's all a bit like Sunday school, I think, mm. when you try to to parse out morals and messages. I just find what it fascinating think? to dig for deeper meanings, and I think that even even despite perhaps what the filmmakers' intentions were, there's always some messages that can be extracted if you look hard enough but it depends on on what you're looking for or if you want to look like you say you're not the kind of person and i respect that 
who doesn't necessarily look for a moral to the story. And I'm not that kind of person by default. It's just that every time I explore a movie with a guest on this show or in my own film group, I always find a theme. What do you find here in All About Eve? And again, this is this is somewhat subjective. You don't have to agree with some of the assessments here, but in doing the research and forming my own opinions, here are some themes that I found. The capacity for human beings to betray and to backstab and exert power and influence over others in their pursuit of dominance and control. I mean, that's kind of understood, right? Yeah. There's a hidden predator in all of us that sometimes surfaces if we are to survive and thrive, I think is a message that can you can take home here. So Eve is the primary predator in this story, we can agree. A social climber who is literally shown near the bottom of a fire escape early on and then at the bottom of a staircase in different scenes to suggest how she needs to climb above people to get ahead, even in a kind of symbolic or visual way. I think another theme is that comeuppance can be karmically cruel, but deliciously ironic, too. So there's a bit of a comeuppance element, element here. Although by the end of the film, is there a comeuppance for Eve? Perhaps in the sense that this is all going to happen again with another understudy. Human beings, they often wear masks to disguise their real identities and intentions. So here's an example. Think about how Eve hides her true name. DeWitt says it's Gertrude Sachinsky or something like that. And, yeah. and then Phoebe, Phoebe is that uh, new kind of Eve that enters into the picture at the very end. Now, she may not be that person's real name. She says, I call myself Phoebe. So that's likely yeah. some kind of a pseudonym, right? And then you consider how we are shown mirror shots through the movie in which we see Eve reflected in Margot's mirror. And later we see Phoebe revealed in Eve's mirror. And these females reflected in the mirror appear humble and docile and pitiable. But soon we learn that what they're capable of. And the final shot featuring Phoebe wearing Eve's gown and, and, and holding that coveted award in a multi-paneled mirror to me, it reveals multiple Phoebes. I mean, literally, we see you know multiple reflections, but but it's as if to say that there's there's countless array of backstabbers and glory seekers out there, just like this one. I would, in response to all that, I would quote a Margot Channing line mm-hmm. from the movie: "Tell that to Dr. Freud, along with the rest of it." <laughs> as to the mirrors. I think probably they owe more to Orson Welles's uh, The Lady from Shanghai mm. than to any uh, any higher moral. Yeah, good point, uh, which came out, what, plane. three, four years earlier. The injustice and unfairness of growing old and being replaced by someone younger is arguably a strong theme here. Maybe all the world's a stage and life is a series of performances. It doesn't matter if you're a stage actor or not. We are given roles or we claim roles and are judged based on our performance in a relationship, in a group, or as a solo performer in life. Think back to the conclusion of the party scene in which our main characters are seated almost in a hierarchical fashion upon the staircase. It's been pointed out that the group seated on the staircase somewhat resembles a hive of bees, which is appropriate given that Margot says the famous line, we are all busy little bees full of stings making honey day and night. I think it's very interesting to hear what people find for themselves as long as they don't apply it, you know, to the uh, to the director's intentions. Sure. Or, or the well, you, you, you can kind of equate how to interpret a movie subjectively to listening to a piece of music. Let's say it's a popular song on the radio, right? Now, the songwriters and performers may have intended something completely different, but that song can take on a a very personal relevance to you, the listener, in a completely different way than what was intended. So I think that that can also be true of other works of art as well, whether it's a painting or, for that matter, a movie. In in literary criticism, there's a a phrase called the intentional fallacy, Mm -hmm. which means, you know, what we're talking about, more or less, finding finding things uh, that the author did not intend. But on, from the opposite point of view, it's, it's perfectly fine to find anything in a work of art because the author is working at many levels, subconscious and conscious, and he or she cannot possibly know what, what he or she is including in, in the work. That's a good point. Absolutely. Who do you think this film appealed to in 1950 on its original release, Sam? And who do you think it appeals to today? And bonus question, if that appeal has changed, what does that say about All About Eve's impact, influence, and legacy? Well, it appeals.
appeal to a sophisticated urban audience uh, in 1950. Uh, certainly it was it played better in New York and San Francisco and probably Chicago and then later in London and Paris than than it did in small towns across America or in the British provinces or the French countryside at small cinemas. It was a little bit uh, it was perhaps a bit above the head of the the average moviegoer. Movie uh, a year or so before, there had been a, a movie called Aaron Slick from Punkin' Crick, which probably was a you know a much beloved uh, uh, movie in some of the smaller places and the drive-ins. So uh, all about Eve was it was a, a for urban sophisticates. But then, in its second run at drive-ins and the like, I think it probably attracted a much more diverse audience. But keep in mind, this 1950 was before television, for the most part. And so people didn't, unless you were in New York or a large city, you didn't really know much about stage life and stage acting. You, you got all that from the movies, or you didn't get it at all. So... I, I would love to know what people in, in small towns in the Midwest, the South, and the Far West, what they would have made of it at the time. I never really found satisfactory answers about that. Mm. Uh, it was it was an international hit, uh, of course, and uh, played you know with subtitles and uh, and uh, dubbing in, in various countries, and made a good bit of money. But it was not a runaway hit. It was sort of a an artistic hit more than anything else at the time. Then, uh, oh, about twenty, close to twenty years later, after Stonewall, uh, or even before Stonewall, in in the sixties, it began to be uh, shown in art houses once again in New York, San Francisco, L.A., Boston, and Chicago. Uh, around, and so it attracted a large gay following who who loved Margot Channing and the the mm. camp value of, That's right. of the movie. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and in fact, when I when I saw it that first time at the Elgin Theater, I, I would imagine the audience was probably about eighty percent gay and gay and right? lesbian. Uh, they had they'd seen it so many times that they, as I, as I said before, they had memorized the script practically. So, uh, and then today, I think it's. It's a huge audience of that crosses just about every uh, every line. Uh, you know, gay, straight, young, old. It has really universal appeal. Uh, appeal, which it has come to have, I should say, universal appeal over the years. That's refreshing to hear, really, because you want to know that uh, a classic like this should re remain evergreen and fresh to new generations, right? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Well, I have hope, because sometimes when I have these conversations with, with my guests, uh, many of whom are scholars, critics, experts, filmmakers, sometimes we come to a conclusion that uh, the longevity of this movie is not necessarily that hopeful. It could be a relic that isn't as appreciated in, in decades to come. But, Sam, what elements from All About Eve have aged well, and what are showing some wrinkles, perhaps? Well, the moralistic things, that I think those are showing some wrinkles when George Sanders says to uh, to Ann Baxter after he's slapped her a bit in the hotel room you know the, she says to him something like belong to you it's like something from an old from an old melodrama and he says so is the history of the world for the past 20 years of course he was referring to World War two and and mm. the depression and horrible things but that kind of moralistic uh, insertion at that particular time, seems to me rather misplaced and, and quite old-fashioned. One other thing that is not so fresh is Marilyn Monroe's uh, role as a dumb blonde. Mm. You know, that was, that it's been done to death, and it's, it still is being done. Uh, it's, it's quite tiresome. I, mm -hmm. uh, one sort of recent example is uh, Woody Allen's Bullets Over Broadway. Uh, so I think, you know, I, I think Marilyn Monroe herself is so fresh and interesting in, in the picture that uh, people like to see her, but her playing that playing a dummy does not serve her well, I, I think, not at all. What about Margot but, Channing? I mean, does she still resonate as a strong character? Yes, uh, over the top, but uh, I, I wish there were more people like her around. I really do. People are so, certainly younger generations are so 
laid back and so uninterested in most things except looking at their at their cell phone. I'd love to see some some young woman in her twenties say, "Fasten your seatbelts; it's going to be a bumpy night." <laughs> That's an expression we probably haven't heard in many a moon. So, yeah, they don't cut them like Margot Channing every day. And certainly, the friendship between Margot Channing and uh, Karen Richards, mm-hmm. even though, as we said a minute ago, uh, Betty Davis and Celeste Holm did not like each other one little bit, that 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 their friendship is is something that. I think women in general, and certainly feminists, could uh, could admire and uh, talk about. Certainly, yeah. I mean, I'm not trying to pick on this movie with this question, but I think there are some things to take away and be encouraged about in terms of, again, the evergreen nature of it. And, well, I, let, let me just add one thing. The, one's dedication to one's art, if you will, Margot mm. Channing's dedication to the art of acting, and... The, the love of theater in all the characters. Uh, George Sanders, as Addison DeWitt says, for example, uh, something like, I have I've worked, uh, I have no other life than the theater. I'm like a Trappist monk. Uh, he, his whole life is theater. So whether he's a, he's not such a, a, an admirable character in many ways, but once again, dedicated to his art. Mm. As all the others are, Bill Sampson, the the director, Lloyd Richards, the playwright, uh, Karen, who calls herself the lowest form of celebrity. I'm only a playwright's mm-hmm. wife, but she she's dedicated to to the theater in that she wants her husband's plays to be only top quality. Maybe the takeaway here, the overarching kind of idea we're agreeing on, is loyalty. And there's loyalty among the characters, the friendships, even by the end. And you see that Eve stands out because of her disloyalty. But the others are either loyal to themselves as friends or, or as, as, as fellow uh, artists or loyal to their professions and their passions, like you said, Addison, to the theater. But Eve stands out because, again, although she's achieved great success— she has been ostracized from that group, and that makes a point. Loyalty matters. It does. It does. Now, I think, personally, that Eve will go on and become a, a highly successful actress. I don't think she's going to get her comeuppance for a long time, personally, perhaps. But professionally, I think she will keep right on going because she knows who to step on and who uh, not to and who to cultivate. Although, if it's to be believed that this is a circular story in which Phoebe takes the place of Eve and is going to be her surrogate, going to be her understudy, going to be her snake in the grass, then maybe the comeuppance is imminent, <laughs> so Perhaps, to speak. but karma, karma doesn't work as fast in, uh, in reality as it does in Hollywood That's movies. true. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> So, Sam, this is a birthday celebration, 70 years for All About Eve, and birthdays are all about presents, except every time I ask this question, I remind the audience that it's the fans who continue to get the gifts. So what is All About Eve's greatest gift to viewers? The wit, the absolute pleasure of seeing people on screen like Betty Davis and all the others, and long after they they have gone from the earth, there they are, still giving pleasure. Can't argue there. Any others? Once again, the the, the dedication of everybody uh, connected with the movie. Uh, Mankiewicz as writer-director, uh, Zanuck as producer, who, who cut out quite a bit from the script, and all to the good, I think. And then all the, the, the cast members, the cinematographer, everybody who worked on it. It's a great gift to to us, the 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 gift that that keeps on and on and on giving. I thought long and hard about this uh, this question and how I would answer it because I've owned this movie in several incarnations on home video. I've upgraded to the latest Criterion Collection Blu-ray, for example, and I asked myself, what is it about this film that keeps pulling me back every few years to revisit and to reassess? And it just grows in stature, like I said earlier, every time I see it. It's not like, eh, it's losing a step. I'm not as enamored as I was years ago. No, I have to say, I love this movie. And you could make a case, is this a chick flick, quote-unquote, that I would, you know, 
be diametrically opposed to as a, as a man or something like that? No. Is it an exciting, adventurous tale that, you know, absorbs you from the minute you watch? It is absorbing, but it, like I said, it lacks action. I mean, the plot is pretty straightforward. So what is it about the movie that keeps me coming back? Well, here are the answers. Here are the three greatest gifts that I've come up with. I think number one, it's it's the delicious screenplay. We've talked about this. It's it's filled with tasty bone mows and an infinitely memorable one-liners, right? As well as finely honed characters who each have interesting facets and motivations. Now, to me, ingeniously, the story pulls you in by beginning with the mystery that triggers the flashback and that asks the question, how did Eve get to the top of the ladder? And up front, we know what has happened. Now we want to know how it happened and the manner in which the film retraces these steps makes for great entertainment. And the impeccably constructed story and finely crafted dialogue bring out the very best from all the actors, many of whom do the finest work of their careers in this in this picture. A second gift for me is the iconic performance by Betty Davis, which came late in her career, as you said, but stands as, you can make a case this is her finest work, depending on what you what you feel about that. Davis can accomplish feats of magic with her eyes alone and her line delivery, her timing, her caustic wit, and her slightly delayed actions and reactions, as well as her impulsive dance-like kind of uh, gestures and responses, too. We are mesmerized by her in every scene she inhabits, and, and we're grateful when she returns to the story after exiting for long stretches to allow Eve's story to expand. It's interesting how she disappears from the picture for a while and then comes back, right? Yes. The, yeah. the romance between Margot and Bill is all the more believable when you consider the chemistry concocted between Davis and Hugh Merrill, who are carrying on a heated off-screen romance concurrently while filming. And, and lastly, Sam, its third greatest gift is its unforgiving cynicism, lending this artifact from the 1950s a timeless, incredible quality that gives it resonance and plausibility today. While the lessons learned here are dark and pessimistic, the revelation of characters as selfish, insecure, venomous, deceitful, and flawed, I think it helps us to take this film more seriously and adopt it as a perhaps cautionary tale that applies to virtually every viewer, not just to those in show business. Do you think this movie will still be widely watched and considered relevant in, boy, let's, let's jump ahead here. How about another 70 years from now? What's going to happen to All About Eve? If there is any civilization left in 70 years, I think this will perhaps be, be uh, looked at the way that we, that today we, we revive Shakespeare and Greek tragedy and restoration comedy. Yeah, I don't think it'll ever go out of style. I hope to God that nobody ever tries to remake it. You know, they're always talking about doing some, some desecration like that. I can just imagine Gwyneth Paltrow as Margot Channing. Oh, please. Well, they did. They redid it for the stage recently. Did you read about that? Yeah, yeah. I don't think it was very successful. I believe Gillian Anderson played Margot Channing in London. Mm. The musical was different enough to be to stand on its own. I don't think it's very good, frankly. But mm. at least it was not a carbon copy. It, it didn't try to be. And all sorts of interesting and unlikely people played Margot Channing in, in the musical. Of course, Lauren Bacall on Broadway for quite a while, and then Arlene Dahl and Ava Gabor and, oh, uh, I forget who else. Uh, quite, a, quite a long list. What you said about cynicism, I think we, we certainly need more cynicism in, in daily life and in politics. But, you know, I'm, I'm rather jaded about all about Eve because I have seen it so many times. And yet, uh, every, time, every time I watch it, it's fresh. It's almost like seeing it for the first time. It's like it's like a reunion with old friends, I would say. That's a testament to a great movie. I mean, you, you couldn't have said it better. That right there is proof positive that this movie has staying power, even for somebody like yourself, admitted, who has seen it so many times that it's probably worn out its welcome. It's still welcoming, though, it sounds like, when you when you pop it on television and give it another watch. Yeah, and when I come across a, a still picture of Betty Davis in a in a book or a magazine, a, a still from the movie, I always stop and look. You know, uh, I, I, once again, it's like it's like seeing a picture of a of a friend that you haven't encountered for a while. High praise. What are you currently working on, Sam? That listeners should check out. Any books in the works? Well, uh, yes, I have. I recently finished a novel. 
which is a reimagining of the great Dickens novel, Great Expectations. Mine is set in Savannah, Georgia, in the early 1950s, and then it moves to New York. Uh, you may remember that Great Expectations opens in the, the marshlands of England and then moves to London, and so mine follows a similar trajectory. I haven't found a publisher yet. That sounds uh, like a I'm, fresh spin, though, on a classic tale, so you're setting it in a completely different landscape and setting. Uh, you could say that I deconstructed the plot of Great Expectations and reassembled it uh, for mid-century America. And it goes from, 19, from New Year's Eve, 1949, when my little orphan boy is in the cemetery visiting his parents' grave. Uh, it goes from there through the 60s and 70s, and finally ends more or less in 1976, the bicentennial year. But then... Dickens had two endings for Great Expectations, and I have two endings for my novel. One ending is September the 10th, 2001. So make of that what you will. Mm. Well, that sounds fascinating. I wish you luck in finding a publisher and getting that to print. How about uh, your most recent book? Is it the uh, Zsa, Zsa book? That's the most recent published one, yes. Uh, finding Zsa, Zsa, which came out last year from uh, Kensington Books in New York. And uh, I was, I've been a fan of the Gabors since I was eight years old. And, uh, of course, Zsa, Zsa enters the picture of All About Eve. She was married to George Sanders at the time. That's right. Mm-hmm. And she, Manquitz developed a uh, dislike for her, and I can understand why, because she would come to the set and try to to lure George away to go shopping. And finally, <laughs> finally, Manquitz banned her from the set. Now, in the meantime, when she was doing all of this, she was desperate to have a career of her own because her sister Ava was quite a hit on Broadway. George uh, was a, a big movie star. Wasn't and she vying for Marilyn Monroe's part in All About Eve? Oh, she begged George to, to tell Zanuck to cast her in the Marilyn Monroe part. And then uh, she, she also wanted to play the part of Phoebe. Of course, it's interesting that Phoebe is a, a, a teenager of about 17 or so, and Zsa at that time was uh, pushing 35. That would not but, have worked. <laughs> no, it wouldn't have. And, but I want to point out that uh, All About All About Eve, my book, will be uh, available on audio from Blackstone in March of next year. Uh, Oh, that's fantastic news. Well, we will be looking forward to all these different things coming up, and it was a pleasure to talk to you, Sam, about All About Eve. Thank you so much for saying yes and for your knowledge and expertise. It was my pleasure, Eric. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed our dialogue. Here's a toast and a tip of the cap to the 70th birthday of All About Eve. Ah, that was a lot of fun. Thanks again to Sam for revisiting All About Eve with me, Cineversary style. It's now time for the segment we call Standing Ovations. This is where I give a shout-out to a TV program, podcast, book, movie, website, or other work that I think would be of interest to folks like you, classic film lovers. So for November, my recommendation goes to Around the World in 80s Movies. This is a podcast by film writer Vince Leo of Quipster.net, who shines a spotlight on popular flicks, cult films, foreign cinema, and obscure features released in and around the 1980s. Each episode is chock full of interesting facts and backstories and making of tales and absorbing trivia about a different movie. He's covered everything from... Blade Runner, Back to the Future, and E.T. to trashy fare like Xanadu, forgotten artifacts like Breakin' 2, Electric Boogaloo, forgot about that one, didn't you? And TV shows of the era such as V, the original miniseries. Other episodes cover Outland, Electric Dreams, The Brother from Another Planet, The Beastmaster, Road Games, The Land Before Time, Cloak and Dagger, Dragon Slayer, War Games, you get the idea. It's good as well as god-awful fare from 30 to 40 years ago. What I like about each installment is that Leo gives you the essential 411 as well as his critical rating for that film, all in a nice, concise, entertaining package that doesn't overstay its welcome. I particularly enjoyed his foray into some films preceding the 80s, including his show on the 1976 version of King Kong, a guilty pleasure, and his dive into the deep waters surrounding 1975's Jaws. 
Take it from me, it's a great listen and well worth your time, a real labor of love from a fellow podcaster who truly enjoys compact film analysis. You can hear Around the World in 80s Movies on virtually every podcast platform you can think of, including Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify. Instead of cluttering up our podcast with advertisements, we've decided to ask our listeners for their support. We could use your help to offset the costs to produce Cineversary, which includes expenses like podcast hosting provider fees. If you'd like to make a monetary contribution to the Cineversary podcast in any amount, large or small, we've made it safe and simple by partnering with PayPal to collect the funds. Simply visit tinyurl.com, that's T-I-N-Y-U-R-L.com, slash Donate Cineversary, and click on the Donate button. Any major credit card is accepted, and the entire transaction is handled securely and confidentially by PayPal. Or if you're familiar with PayPal, you can simply send us a payment in any amount you want to cineversegroup at gmail.com, and that's spelled C-I-N-E-V-E-R-S-E, group at gmail.com. We really appreciate your generosity. Also, I'd love to hear what you think of our Cineversary podcast. You can email me suggestions or comments at cineversegroup at gmail.com. And I encourage you to visit cineversegroup.com, the portal for my film discussion group that I launched in 2005, where you can hear podcast recordings of our group discussions and read more about the movies we study. Wow, hard to believe, but that about closes the book on another chapter of Cineversary. But next month, we'll turn the page and focus our attention on a masterwork of animation and ingenuity. In December, we will give props to Disney Pixar's Toy Story, which, I can't even believe I'm saying this, marks a quarter century this year. This has been your humble host, Eric Martin, once again reminding you to butter up that popcorn, live a big screen surround sound life, stay safe and healthy during this lingering pandemic, and cherish those classic movies because, yep, they're not getting older. You know the answer. They're only getting better. Thanks again for listening.